Join me, Harriet Gould, for the Lab Matters podcast to hear fascinating stories every week from the inspiring people behind the science. In this episode, you'll hear from award-winning astronomer and professor of cosmology, John Peacock. And it's not only about science. John has a creative talent up his sleeve too. Join us to hear more. Hello, John. John, thank you so much for joining us. Now, um, John, you're you're a decorated cos- cosmologist um, in the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say you're what most people would call a high achiever. Um, but, but before all that happened, you you started out being born in Shaftesbury. That was a great achievement, lovely place to be born. Um, and both your parents were radio operators. And then you moved via Cheltenham to Leighton Buzzard because your father became the director of um, Bletchley Park. Um, and, that, and that's where your that's where your education began in Leighton Buzzard. And did you want to talk us a little bit through that and tell us how how that started started you on the path to where you are today? By all means, um, it's it's a great story, really, because um, it's all centered around my father, who was thoroughly working class. My grandfather worked in an iron foundry. Uh, my dad left school at 15 because the money was needed, right? Education had to stop. Um, but like a lot of working class households in those days, they, they, they had a big value on, on, on education. Um, <laughs> in fact, it, here's a story that illustrates this. When, when I first went to, to grammar school, aged 11, um, at the end of the year, I came second in the class, and I was pretty pleased about that. Um, and my grandfather was visiting, and I said, Grandad, Grandad, I, I came second in the class. And he looked at me and said, come back and tell me when you're first, son. He actually said that. <laughs> so um, that that you know, it was obviously some force behind my dad wanting to improve himself. And he went to, to night school to carry on the qualifications that he couldn't have the time to continue at school. Um, he joined the post office, got trained up as a radio operator, uh, spent the war um, listening to harrowing conversations from North Sea convoys and, and, and all that. Um, and also, I think, probably participating, as all radio operators did, in the, in the, the code apparatus. As you know, then there was lots of German traffic around. It was all notated down in code and sent to Bletchley Park for, for breaking. And he was just the tiniest little, little cog in this machine. Um, as was my my mum, who was who was Scottish, but went down to London to to train as a radio operator in the, the, the tail end of the war, and they both ended up being posted to a, a small listening station in Cooper in, in in Fife after the war. So by now you're listening to the to the Russians, but it's still the same game, writing stuff down, um, sending it down to to the code breakers, and so that's where they they met and and got married and. Um, Subsequently, my dad moved south, uh, worked in GCHQ in Cheltenham. So obviously he had some association with the whole code-breaking side of things. Well, I think, as far as I know, always on the, the technical side of things. You know, so when he had his big break, um, this is 1965, he was, he was moved from Cheltenham to uh, become director of Bletchley Park. Um, 
by then, Bletchley Park wasn't doing any of the code breaking. You know, that, it was this iconic centre in the war, but then all that stuff was centralised in GCHQ, and Bletchley Park was a was a training college for for radio operators. Mm-hmm. But still, for a guy who left school at fifteen to become a senior civil servant in, in charge of a, a place of, of that size, you know, it's an amazing achievement. Really, really quite inspiring. Oh. And so, <laughs> so, so you're in Leighton Buzzard now. You're how old are you now? Well, so we, we moved there when I was uh, what nine. Mm-hmm. I was very unhappy about it because I, I loved living near Cheltenham, we were actually out in the country on the, on top of Cleve Hill, which looks down on, on Cheltenham, and you know, it's just just. Wild, wild open space. You can go for walks for, for miles, and uh, you know we we moved to a commuter town, and I, I really felt it was a downward step. <laughs> um, nice. However, you, you know, again, I've, I've got a lot to be grateful for because um, my dad didn't live in Bletchley, which is right next door to Bletchley Park. And they got this. They, they moved to Leighton Buzzard, which is know, twenty minutes drive away or something, because there was a very good school, um, the Cedars. Um, and it was a grammar school, so I needed to pass the 11 plus, which I was pushed to revise for, and, and I did. And, and so, you know, I was able to access this, this elite education system, which, you know, I've always had mixed feelings about, because obviously the, the resources that were given to the grammar schools were way above the, the secondary models, and people who didn't pass 11 plus got a really raw deal. But the fact is that if you got into that elite stream, you know, educationally it was fantastic because you were pushed all the way. Um, you, know, you were encouraged to do things as, as soon as you're able to to take on you know, more and more challenges. Um, and that, that experience obviously stands you in good stead down the line. Indeed. And that school not only educationally was very good in terms of the core teaching, but Bedfordshire was a, was a great place because it had the music programme in every school in the county, not just the, the grammar schools. It's amazing from where we are now. You know, there's free instrumental tuition, free provision of instruments. Um, just an extraordinary enlightened thing to have done at a time when the country was much poorer than, than it is now. You know, and I look back with, with such gratitude because although by then, you know, my parents could have afforded music lessons. It would never have occurred to them. You know, it just wasn't the culture that they came from, classical music. Would you have known that you, because I mean, we haven't we haven't said anything about the your your musical interests, um, but, you, but you are a musician. You play the clarinet to an incredibly high standard. And- um, Very much. I, was it it's, it's a big part of my life. I mean, it's something I put a lot of importance on and mm-hmm. having an academic job, I'm lucky enough that, uh, Gives me the flexibility and control of my diary that um, concerts in uh, make sure I turn up for them. Indeed. Well, but um, thank goodness I didn't have to do music for a profession because it's it's a dog's life. But, but you know it's a great hobby to have. It really is. And, would you? Um, you know, yeah, would, and all that was provided on a plate by the educational system that, that we had it, in those days. Did you have an inkling towards music before it was introduced to you at school, or? Or was it simply that introduction that that set you down that path? Oh, I mean, I, I liked singing. I had a great, I think, voice as a as, as a treble, and it broke. I, and I'm tempted, to, tempted to have you demonstrate it, but no, no, <laughs> see if we've got time at the end. <laughs>
But um, so yeah, the, it was simply the introduction by the school, and then you chose clarinet. Um, and and, and then the youth orchestra. Yeah, just um, just carried on from there, yes. Mm, indeed. Okay. Um, and that was your first real achievement, actually, musically, joining the youth orchestra from that school. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. So, well, it was, I mean, there was a big range of activities. There was a, a county concert band, so I joined that first, and then uh, you know, we had auditions to, to get into the youth orchestra, and I managed to pass that. So I had a few very, very happy years with that, um, ending up um, the one and only time I've ever played in the Albert Hall it was my, my final concert. So it was a, it was a big deal for the, for the Bedford operation in those days to, to be able to do that. Were you nervous? Uh, not, not really. I mean, maybe I should have been, but you know, it was, it was just all a new experience. So, you know, the, the thing is, when you're young, I think nerves strike you less. Perhaps there's, there's probably a kind of, um, there's, there's probably a kind of optimum. You know, when you're just starting out, you've never failed, so you're not scared of doing it. After a while, you accumulate a few experiences of things going wrong and uh, you start to worry about it but then eventually you accumulate enough experience that you know how to to handle that indeed um and so it wasn't just music it was it was science and maths as well that that, that, that your real strength lay and and that was spotted by um uh, someone called edward edward murgatroyd mr murg as, as we called him everybody thought he was great a real character but he, he was the chemist's teacher. Um, and of all the subjects I did at school, I, I probably enjoyed, I liked chemistry the most, you know, was motivated, wanted to do well at it. What did you like about it? Well, I mean, all sorts of things. The, the thing I missed the most is, uh, is wearing a white lab coat. Right? You felt like a proper scientist then. <laughs> um, but as a physicist, you don't get to do that. Um, well, look, you see, looking back, I mean, I realized I was misled because chemistry is quite a broad subject. Um, some of it's bangs and stinks, you know, mixing stuff in test tubes. But you also get to a lot of what's actually quite deep physics and particularly atomic structure. You know, why, why does the periodic table have, have the form it does? Why do the, the individual elements react the way they do and relating all that to, to where electrons are in, in orbit about the atomic nucleus? And I loved that stuff. And it was only later I realized actually it's more physics than. In chemistry, but there was less of that, strangely, in the in the physics syllabus at school, which at the time I found really boring. Don't know whether that was just the the, the teacher I had or or what, but whatever. Um, it, it, you know, the time came to go to university, and I thought I'm determined to be a chemist. But uh, I was, and when I look at where where I, how I've got to where I am, you know, I can see a whole pile of pieces of good luck, um, one of which was ending up going to Cambridge. So you know, the school advised me that that was a place worth applying to, and I did, um, ended up at Jesus College. Uh, again, piece of good luck. I think it's the nicest college in the entire university. It was only picked because we had a, um, a trainee teacher from there visiting the school at the time I was applying. Otherwise, I could have chosen one of the, the low-end ones. But, but that worked out well. Um, so if, if you go to Cambridge, though, you can't just say, I'm going to study chemistry. In the first year, you have this program called Natural Sciences, which is deliberately designed to be very broad. So fine, you can do chemistry, but you've got to do 
other full subjects as well. So I carried physics simultaneously. And by the end of the, the first year, I thought, you know what, this is so much easier. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 was, I still liked chemistry, but I felt I was surrounded by students who were better at it than me, and more, you know, had a kind of intuitive knack for the subject that, that I didn't match up to. Whereas with physics, it was kind of, kind of the other way around. It was just a line of least resistance. So I thought, obviously, I was intended to, to do this. So, um, so at the end of that first year, I specialised in, in physics, and uh, and that went on. Um, so when that was over, of course, then you got to think, hmm, what next? So there were job fairs and so on. So I applied for various stuff um, to see what, what it was that physicists could do. Um, some of it I didn't like the idea of at all. You know, there was the big um, companies like Ferrantes and Marconi's in those days, hoovering up the physicists for working on military radar and, and, and what have you. And I, I didn't feel drawn to that. I did have a, a job offer from um, Alderaston, which is the atomic bomb place. Um, but they also had, um, had a program on, on um, laser fusion, mm-hmm. which at the time I, I was very excited about. And fusion power has this, this great... Um, selling point of its uh, infinite supply of, of energy for, for zero cost. It solves all our, all our problems. And when you look at the state of the world now and um, CO2 emissions, we certainly badly need that sort of technology. But again, that would have been a mistake because fusion research, frankly, in, in 50 years has, has gone virtually, there's been incremental progress, but it's still decades and decades away from ever working. So I'd have spent my entire career on something that had never gone anywhere. And I think I found that a bit frustrating. But in the end, none of these jobs really appealed. So I thought, you know, what, what I'll do is I'll um, kick it into the long grass. So I'll, I'll just stay at Cambridge and do a PhD. And I was so naive. You know, I, I see students now applying for PhDs. They, you know, they put in 10 applications to different places. They you know, they go and get summer experience that will help um, make their application go better. I just applied to Cambridge. I thought, well, if I'm good enough, I can stay here. And if I'm not good enough, then I'll just have to go out and get a job. Um, and I didn't even think very much about what the research would be. And I looked at some of the options. And Cambridge was very big, particularly on solid state physics. But I... I found all those projects just too narrow somehow. I just didn't feel I could commit this this tiny thing. Um, but there was also astronomy. And it just seemed very broad and open-ended. And so I thought, okay, that sounds like fun. Why don't we do that? Um, and that's, that's how I got launched down this this, this career. And it's, it's shameful, really, because I'm forever dealing with students that you know, have known since the age of five they wanted to be a professional astronomer, and uh, so. I ended up doing it by accident, pretty well. Mm, but I mean, you 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 were conscious when you did the pivot from chemistry to physics, at least. You know um, that that there was it was clearly in you. So I wouldn't feel bad about not noticing when you were five. You you noticed when it mattered. Um, so you so you carried on. You did your PhD in Cambridge. You you did a lot of other things. What in during your time at Cambridge, you you 
did lots of sports. You carried on playing the clarinet, for goodness sake. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's terrible, really, looking back. I mean, for about the first 18 months, I did so little work. I was just playing all the time because there's <laughs> so much music. And by now I'd risen up to the, you know, to be top dog in the, in the, in the university clarinet tree. And clarinet. people, you know, you look at, look at the quality of, of some of the student musicians there. They really were exceptional people. And you got to do concerts with you know the absolute top professionals. I remember doing a Britain War Requiem with a, the soprano solos. It was Felicity Lott, and I'd never heard her before. And I was just astonished by, by what happened when she opened her mouth. You know, to, to have worked with people like that, and it was a real privilege to so, so young. However, after about 18 months, I thought, you know what, I need to get serious about this, otherwise this isn't going to go anywhere. So, so I started working hard and, and the results came. And then that However, um, you know, again, it all nearly fell to pieces because at the end of the PhD, well, if you're going to continue in academia, you, you, you need a postdoctoral fellowship, a three-year research position that will let you go somewhere, acquire new skills, work, work on different stuff. And I was told, as, as it was very common, in those days, the USA was seen as the big finishing school. Traditional students from Cambridge was pushed out to, to America. So I applied to, to a few jobs that they, they pointed me to, and um, I didn't get offered any of them. Oh. So at this stage, I was thinking, okay, hmm, now what happens? And then I got my big break because uh, my PhD supervisor, Malcolm Longair, um, got himself a new job, which was the, the director of the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. And so one day he just came to me and said, do you want a research fellowship? I didn't have to apply. He just, as a director, he just had pots of money he could give out as he, as he wished. So I thought, well, it's this or nothing. I don't know anything about the, the setup there, but seen Edinburgh through visiting Scottish relations. So mm -hmm. like a bad place, let's give it a try. And, um, and here I still am. So uh, indeed, when I, uh, I talk to people about, about careers and so on, I say, well, I'm, I'm still doing my first postdoc. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes I think, you know, it sounds really boring, you know, to, to just go somewhere out of your PhD and never move again. Now, of course, Cambridge actually was full of people who went there as undergraduates, did their PhDs and just stayed, so it could be worse. Um, but I, I just feel I just fell on my feet right at the start. I mean, Edinburgh is just this amazing city. And from time to time, I've been you know, encouraged to apply for jobs elsewhere. And every time I looked at them, I thought, you know, it's maybe slightly better professionally, but just in terms of quality of life, as a, as a place to live, as architecture around you, access to the countryside, a lot of great amateur music. It's for me it's just the complete package. So And you um you enjoy the the climbing the mountains in Scotland. Do you, uh -huh. have, you no, done, like, on the Munros or uh, yes, I mean not a Munro bagger. I mean a lot of them aren't very interesting to climb, but you know, there's a kind of top hundred, most of which I've I've, I've been up a, a few times. And, yeah, no, I, like, I like to do it. Um, I mean, my son trained as an outdoor instructor, so for a while he was he was making a living, you know, t taking um, parties of young people up hills. So it's really nice to get out with him and, and do something challenging. Sure. And then 
so you, you see, um, you 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 went to Edinburgh. You did your postdoc. You um, you've been there ever since. But it wasn't a given that it was going to be forever. You had to go through a few stages before you got to the forever stage. Um, let's let's talk about that for a minute. But you know, the the time before you got the tenure. How yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. So having set off on the, um, the academic trail, and by the way, found I liked it, which wasn't a given, because um, mm. you know, doing a PhD, it's it, in reality, it's a very controlled thing. Uh, I think the theory, once upon a time, was that you, know, you, you turn up, and you talk to a supervisor, and says, "Well, here's two or three papers. Go and have a read of these, and come back in three years and." Tell me what you've done as a result. You know, th these days, you know, you're given a, a quite well-defined problem and you know, it's a series of hoops to jump through. But you get to the end of it, and you are—at least I was—really completely unsure whether I could manage on my own. Do you think there's one way is better than the other? The the freedom that you had versus the the more defined brief. It depends. It depends on the individual. You know, some some students need. Um, the space to do things for themselves. Others would just, you know, struggle. So I, I think you know, what, now when I'm taking on PhD students myself, what I try to do is to construct a, a, a minimum program and I say to them, look, you know, these are my ideas about what you could do. And if you do ABC in this order, then you know, I think you should get a PhD at the end of it. If you think of something better, fine, but it's not compulsory. Mm -hmm. um, so and anyway, so I turned up in Edinburgh and the nice thing at the time was that there was very little research in what I was interested in, in cosmology, which you might think is a, is, is a negative thing because science is so much about interaction with colleagues and bouncing ideas off each other. Mm -hmm. But the downside of that is that you know, then you're never quite sure what what idea is yours and what you you, you got from from somebody else you know, and if i'd gone to some other departments there would have been some big shot cosmologists and i'd always been the little boy you know looking up to them whereas in, in edinburgh i was i had to look after myself and it was so liberating you, know, you just go to the library read the journals and if i saw something interesting i could pursue it nobody's going to tell me not to or indeed what to do, just, you know, I had to take responsibility. And mm -hmm. after a year or so, I realized I'm loving this. Um, that was a great pleasure to, to make that transition. And, and much harder these days, I think, um, for a variety of reasons. Science has become this, this, this kind of big industrial enterprise. So a lot of the projects that people get into are much more well-developed. Um, you know, it was back back in the early 1980s we're talking about there was so much in cosmology that is now textbook stuff that just wasn't known you know it was it was easy to make progress without doing anything incredibly difficult or, or smart whereas now the, the the bar is much higher so for young people you know it's that mostly they don't have that kind of postdoctoral freedom that i had because they want to make an impact and that means joining one of the big projects and becoming a, a small cog in this machine Anyway, but at that time, for me, you know, this told me I do want to do this, and um, then your desire is to become part of academia, to to be a, 
um, a university lecturer or ultimately more senior. The trouble is, uh, there was one big problem um, in those days, which was Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she, she was really antipathetic towards the universities and funding was had the lid on it. There were just no jobs at all. Nobody was hiring. Mm -hmm. um, so it almost sounded like it was going to be the same thing as at the end of my PhD. If you want to, to do something, you're going to have to leave the country. So I remember I saw this this lectureship in, um, in um, University of Victoria in, in, in British Columbia. I thought, oh, that sounds quite nice. You know, so I've been at this a year now. I need to start thinking about making applications for the university jobs. I remember taking taking this to, to Malcolm Long, our director, and my boss, and saying, well, you know, what, what do you think? And he looked at me and said, hmm, I think you could do better. And That's a little while later, he came to me and said, I think we can create a permanent research position in the observatory. I'd like you to apply for it. So I did, and I was given it. And I wasn't overjoyed, I have to say, because it wasn't a university job, which is what I really wanted. Because mm -hmm. right? the, the Royal Observatory was a, was a national observatory, so it was... And predominantly engineers, instrument scientists, so scientific civil servants. Um, and I was to be another one of those. Now, there was a university department as well, and it's co-sited. It's one of the great things about Edinburgh, that you've got this national lab and university group all just there as one thing. Uh, but this wasn't a job in the university side. And I thought, you know, if I take this, am I kind of cutting myself off from academia forever? So I agonized for quite a long time before thinking well okay there isn't actually an alternative unless I want to emigrate so mm. do it um so that was 1983 and it, it wasn't in, so I was I was um I was 26 so it was you know unusual then and certainly now to to, to be in a permanent position so so young um, but again, that's that 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 was great because when, when you're young, you're you're energetic, you're you're as creative as you're ever going to be, um, and to have a permanent job and not to have to worry about the, the long term it meant I could again just pursue any project without uh, without worrying about whether it was going to work or not. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until uh, let me see, um, fifteen years later, nineteen ninety eight. That I finally made the transition into into the university. Do you so, remember much? Just back to the back to the, the time at the, the the observatory. Did you remember your first your first project, for example? You, you said you could you could um, pursue any any line you wanted. Do you remember any of the ones that you did that came to something or didn't come to something? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the timing was 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 just perfect. Because mm -hmm. what I'd done as as my my PhD work was what you might call the demographics of black holes, uh, as supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies tend to emit a lot of um, energetic radiation. And so you know, we classify them as, as quasars, you've probably heard of. So the question is, you know, what's the life cycle of quasars? So what I've been in, involved in was trying to see how, how abundant they were as a, as, a, as a function of cosmic time. Because you know, 
we believed then as now that the universe started off from a, a hot, uniform, dense state, and there weren't any discrete objects. So they had to collapse, and the first quasars formed. Um, they burned their energy for a while, and we know they're very rare in the universe today. So there was a kind of up and down. And the question was, well, what was you know, what was the abundance of quasars at, at, at any given time? Um, and I so I did some work on, on on measuring that, how that had changed with time. Now, I hadn't been in Edinburgh very long at all before I just happened to read a paper suggesting that everything we knew about quasar evolution could be wrong because of a, a phenomenon called gravitational lensing. Mm -hmm. So what is this? Um, well, light feels gravity. So um, we have a massive body in, in the universe and we have a beam of light going past it. It's deflected, it's pulled towards that massive body very slightly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is it's measuring that that um, effect was was what first convinced people that Einstein's theory of general relativity was correct. It was back in 1919 when the uh, the deflection of light by by the sun and the solar system was measured, and that was that was a bend angle of only. Um, um, under a thousandth of a degree, so it was a, you know, it was a very small effect. But, but the, on, on cosmological scales, these um, these light deflections mean well. It, it means that massive bodies act as a kind of lens because you think of what the lens does. Lens is here, light goes through it, and it's brought to a focus. Yeah. Um, and so, a gravitational body kind of converges light in that way, and so that's why we call it gravitational lensing. And in the same way as a, a glass lens would, would make distant objects seem brighter, gravitational lenses can do that too. So, and the further away something is, the bigger the chance there's gonna be a blob along the line of sight somewhere. So this, this paper written by an American astronomer called Ed Turner said, hey, maybe we think there were more quasars in the past because the further away they are, the more this lensing effect can brighten them. Mm -hmm. But it was just a, a kind of very vague idea, no no details. So I thought, well, I don't know anything about gravitational lensing. I'd better learn some. And having kind of worked out all the theory from, from scratch to understand it myself, I thought, well, okay, I think I know enough to calculate the probability of this happening. So I did, and I, I wrote a paper um, a year before this guy Turner actually did the same calculation finally, but um, I scooped him and I was, I was really pleased about that because it taught me that you could jump into a new field and just learn from scratch the, you know, the tools that are necessary to, to make some progress yeah. and get on. That's like what I was saying back in those days, there was so much that wasn't known or wasn't very developed. So the theory didn't have to be too too complicated. We just had to put the, the kind of basic elements together. Mm -hmm. and and that, was, that was a great experience to, because because it was something that was completely, you know, a lot of people, their scientific careers, fortunately, tend to keep playing the furrow established by their PhD. You know, it's their it's their safe space, their comfort zone, and I I could easily have, have, have got sucked into that. I mean, I did for several years carry on doing my PhD kind of stuff, but. I realized these completely new projects where I learned something 
were, were much more fruitful and I enjoyed them more and you could have a bigger impact doing something fresh. And that, what you what you found out then, how, how would that translate into an application today or even then? Oh, well, gravitational lensing is, is now an entire field of, of, of its own. Because, um, okay, look, so it turned out my calculation said that the probability of distant quasars being heavily magnified by gravitational lensing was, was very small. It's like one in a thousand. So it wasn't going to, to cause as an optical illusion this idea that quasars were more abundant in the past. Um, but you know, it's an effect that can be measured, um, and you, you can measure it in, in in different ways. So gravitational lensing, the lenses are imperfect. If you get a good lens like these, more or less are, you know, it just makes everything bigger. Your glasses. But if you get a bad lens, then the images are distorted. Mm -hmm. uh, gravitational lensing, the, the the imaging is, is severely distorted. So that means you 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 can look at a a galaxy whose image should be circular, but because of deflections by intervening matter, it becomes turned into an ellipse. I see. Okay. Um, now, of course, no galaxy is exactly circular. So if you see an elliptical galaxy, um, how do you know whether it's intrinsic or, or induced? Well, the answer is that you look on the region of the sky and if you see all the galaxies having a tendency to be stretched in the same direction, that tells you there's a gravitational shear field there. And the presence of that tells you there must be matter causing it because that, that gravitational field has to be sourced by something. And, and so this is, this, all this, uh, there was a great friend of mine, a fantastic cosmologist called Nick Kaiser, who very sadly died um, earlier this year. And he worked, the theory of, of, of all this out in the 1990s, how you could use measurements of these kind of correlated shape distortions of galaxies to just map the, the dark matter. You could see where the dark matter was just by kind of rendering its gravity. Um, and earlier this year, although um, just after Nick's death, very sadly, um, a satellite from the European Space Agency called Euclid was launched. And what it's going to do is exactly that. It's going to image the entire sky, or the majority of it, with the very fine resolution that you can only get in space, and measure these distortions of galaxies and basically figure out where all the dark matter in the universe is. It's an amazing thing to be able to do. Indeed. I mean, thinking about the galaxies, it's 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 a lot beyond a lot of people, I suppose. But um, you know, your specialism in particular. Um, galaxies and then reduction of gravity, gravitational reduction. Uh, does that mean that we're running out of gravity? What? What? How does that work? Uh, well, it, well, gra gravity is 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 very important, right? Um, can I show you a picture? Go for yeah. it. Okay, so just let me do that very briefly. We might have to describe it in case anyone. Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this, but this picture here sums up a a lot of what everybody in cosmology is is, is interested in, and, and certainly stuff I've worked intensively on. So this is the result of a project called the, the two degree field galaxy redshift survey, 
which occupied me more or less for 10 years between, say, 1995 and, and 2005. Mm -hmm. So what are we looking at here? Well, right at the center is you and me. Okay, we're sitting in the Milky Way, which is a galaxy, which is a collection of a of 100 billion stars. Mm -hmm. um, but the universe is filled with other galaxies. So um, either side of that center, we've sort of got two two quarter circles. Yeah. The point. So what? So what? What, you, what, you, what you're seeing is um, a kind of pizza slice through, through the universe. So every dot in this picture is an individual galaxy. There's about a quarter of a million of them. Um, and what the survey was able to do was to figure out where they are in the sky, which is going along this direction. That's just like looking on the sky, taking a little strip and saying, oh, this galaxy here or this one here. But then it's a redshift survey, so you use spectroscopy to figure out how far away it is. Mm -hmm. So you see we're going up to billions of light years distance. And what you see is the large scale structure of the universe. So every, you know, these dots aren't sprinkled around at random. They're connected in patterns. See these vast filaments or this void region where there's, where there's very few galaxies compared to the average. Yeah. Um, so like vein effect. Sorry. Almost like a veiny effect. Well, it's funny. I mean, you, you you look at this and it's reminiscent of if you dissect brain slices and look at them under a microscope. Um, it, it, it does look similar, and this actually tells you that there's a um, there's a kind of universality in, of the mathematical description. There's a, a thing called catastrophe theory, which helps you understand why, why these patterns look the way they do in general terms. But anyway, physically, okay, but this, this is a beautiful picture. I could stare at it all day, but you've, you've captured the basic idea. This, this structure is out there. So the question is, well, why, how, <laughs> what's it telling us? Um, and of course, we're in a universe that's got structures in it. So um, planets and, uh, and my head are 30 powers of 10 denser than the universe on average. So how did such a range of densities come about? And the simplest idea, which seems to be the right one, is that once upon a time, the universe was a very uniform place. The density just fluctuated up and down by a fraction of a percent. But where there was more mass, there was more gravity, and that pulled more mass in, and you have a gravitational instability. And so those enormous chains of galaxies are part of a spectrum of, of fluctuations in density. Um, so you know, the small scale ones cause knots to collapse to make the Milky Way, and but Milky Ways themselves are tend to come together. And we're seeing still in, in the survey, the tail end of that process. So this is a window into the very origin of the universe, that something created the expanding universe as it, expanded, as it emerged out of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. It made it not quite uniform. Okay? There had to be these fluctuations in density. And so what, what we're trying to do is, is do a kind of time machine, that is look at the structure that we can see today understand how gravity amplifies those patterns by pulling matter together and say, well, what, what did the fluctuations look like at the very earliest instance? Mm -hmm. And 
do we have any theoretical mechanism that could account for why they're there? And the, the, the vision, I think it's, it's always been thought likely that, that you could understand this through quantum mechanics because the universe expands. Mm -hmm. So in the past, even these regions of billions of light years across, if you go back far enough in time, they were that whole thing is big enough to hold in your hand or indeed smaller than, than the nucleus, an atomic nucleus. And once something's of that sort of scale, you can't describe it by classical physics. You need quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is about intrinsic uncertainty. So the idea of a universe that has completely uniform density is clearly impossible. And, and so the vision is to try to use the kind of quantum physics that, that dictates the operation of the atoms that we see around us you know, in, in the physical world today, that same physics operating when the universe is very young and small, seeding small fluctuations in density, which gravity then amplifies to the large gas structure today. You know, that, that's the picture that, that's gradually coming into focus. I wouldn't say by any means that it's every stage of it is solved, but there's ideas for how a complete picture could, could work like that. And you say it's still forming quite a long way away, many billions of light years away. Uh, what, I mean, what, if it's known, what's the impact of all that activity on our planet? Well, well not very much. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, so the, the way that this all happens is, is, is hierarchical. So matter falls together. So that means the Milky Way and the nearest big galaxy, which is the Andromeda Nebula, M31, we know now for sure are going to merge in the future. You know, the, the, the two are actually approaching each other and, and they're going to hit. Mm -hmm. Now, is that going to be the, the most enormous cosmic car crash? Well, well, no, because these things are actually almost empty space. Um, I mean, the, the Milky Way's got 100 billion stars in it roughly, but the distance between the stars relative to the size of a star is enormous. Mm -hmm. right? So actually, all that's going to happen is that these two things are going to pass through each other. The chance of two stars actually colliding, or indeed one star coming anywhere near the solar system is is very small. So um, you know, as far as the sun, the solar system, life on Earth is concerned, all that might happen is the night sky would be a bit prettier. Um, although actually it may happen far enough in the future that the sun could have burnt out by then. But you know, in principle, galaxies can collide and people in, around the stars in them can survive just fine. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is it is it that? Is it is it um, in and of itself that's motivated you? Or is it the, the great discovery that's motivated or... Is, is it simply the, the act of, of learning that you feel more drawn to? Well, I mean, master, mastering a piece of formalism mm -hmm. is, is an end in itself. I mean, I mean, all physicists have to be moderately competent mathematicians. So, you know, I can get a kick out of learning about a, a piece of mathematics and just understanding its structure for, for its own sake, you know, so um, doesn't have to be any connection to the physical world to to enjoy that. 
on the other hand, you know, real good mathematicians are just happy to stay in, in that forever. Whereas, um, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough to be a professional mathematician. So I'm much more taken by being able to master a little piece of mathematics and then bring it into contact with the real world and, mm -hmm. and you know, see that you can construct a, a simplified piece of maths that does actually describe something that's really out there and ideally use that as a, as a model to, to measure something that, of, of interest. You know, that, that's, that, that's that kind of interface between observation and theory is, is, is what I found particularly satisfying. I see. Um, and I think I stopped you before and dragged you back into your first project when, um, before you got your tenure, and then you, but you were going to go on to something after that. Um, do you remember what it was? I don't know if it, if was it was it the after the postdoc. Well, uh, progressively during my postdoc and then in, in, into my, my early time in tenure, I got more interested in this this, this whole area of large scale structure. Uh, now we didn't know you know the observations that I sh just showed you. you now that was early 21st century data. So our knowledge of the clustering of galaxies was very rudimentary in, in the 1980s. But again, that, that, that made it fun. There was wild speculation as to, as to what was actually out there. Uh, so you could just enjoy kind of mastering the, 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 um, the, the theoretical methodology for, for understanding gravitational instability and how primordial density fluctuations would would, would um, ma manifest themselves as superclustering of galaxies today. And having learned all that stuff, the, the telescopes, new generations of telescopes are becoming available. And you could just see there's opportunities to measure stuff. And so people naturally got together in, in, in consortia to, to get the amounts of telescope time that, that were needed. You know, that's how the, the 2DF consortium got going, which was, what as I said, 19, I think I joined it in 1993. When it was when it was founded, mm. but you know it was no it was such an obvious thing to do because the, um, the one of the uh, the observatories that the UK operated in those days, the telescope in Australia, the Anglo Australian Telescope, um, they created this uh, this spectroscopy harvesting machine, where instead of just you, know, you point the telescope at one galaxy. You take some light from it, you, you disperse it into its component frequencies, measure some um, spectral features, which, which gives you its, its cosmological redshift and hence its distance. Doing that one at a time is pretty slow and painful. But what they realized is you could use some um, fiber optic technology. So you imagine the, you've got the focal plane of a telescope and you've made an image of the sky here, light mm. from different galaxies is falling, falling at different places. And you just put the head of a fiber optic at, at the position of each galaxy, and for the machine that the Australians built, you could um, suck off the light from 400 galaxies simultaneously. Oh. So you could go 400 times faster than before. And that's why we were able to go from surveys of a few thousand galaxies to a quarter of a million. And it was just, just transformational. But it was obviously going to be so. I didn't you know the, the piece of equipment had, had been built everybody could see what what it was capable of so and that that was in the 90s and then the 90s and that um 
you know, my, my interest in that sort of survey work has has, has continued. I mean, right now, there's an international consortium that I'm part of um, called the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument, which is a telescope in in, in America, um, the Peak Observatory. Now that's doing the same sort of thing that we did with 2DF, but it's uh, 5,000 fibers. So that's another factor of 10. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this survey we're, we're expecting it within the next couple of years to have accumulated about 50 million redshifts. So the statistical precision of your, your knowledge of the large scale structure is correspondingly greater. And we can measure a whole pile of things to do with the, the fundamental nature of the universe much more precisely. Lots to look forward to. Um, I mentioned right at the beginning that you were decorated. You've won a couple of awards, specifically one in 2014. Was that the Shaw Award? The Shaw that, that was the uh, that was the Shaw Prize, um, which you know it, it's it was funded by Mr. Run Run Shaw, who made all the the kung fu movies and became very rich as a as a result. And he wanted to create an Eastern prize that would, you know, his vision was to, to um, come up into competition with the, the Nobel people in Stockholm. So he picked subjects, or particularly astronomy, for which there wasn't a specific Nobel prize, although astronomers have won the Nobel on occasion. Um, medicine, and so it's, it's medicine, astronomy, and mathematics. I guess he had an interest in, in those three. Um, so out of the blue, so it was, it was, it was very funny, because I'd been, at a conference in um, uh, Quebec, in Canada. I flew back into the UK, sort of got out of immigration, opened my phone, and the first thing I saw was, was an email from, from a German astronomer saying, congratulations. Thought, what? <laughs> and then a, a little way down, um, there was this message from, from the Shaw Foundation, along with um, another British astronomer, Sean Cole, who had also been offered it. Because it was it was one of these emails where all the fonts were different colours and so on, and he said, "I got this in my email this morning. It looks like spam. Do you think it's real?" <laughs> um, exactly. So it took a while to 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 realise what what had happened, but um, yeah, that that was that was an amazing time to to have something like that just fall out of the sky on you. Um, so in due course, you know, we went to later that year went to the prize ceremony and. In, in Hong Kong, and uh, really treated like royalty. It was, it was wow. lovely. And then again, another prize, a gold medal. This year. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, no, that was. It was um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the the shore thing comes with a, a substantial cash cash prize. I mean, I, I was my share of it was a quarter of a million dollars. Although the pound was worth something in those days, so actually it wasn't so many pounds, unfortunately. Um, uh, the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society, which is something they give out once a year as a, as a kind of, well, they, they can give it to whoever they want for whatever, um, but it's often a kind of lifetime achievement award in practice. That, there's, there's no prize money with that at all. I see. But somehow these two things mean equally as much to me because having everybody is insecure you know, it's a very competitive field academic astronomy you're always worrying is my work any good you know gosh 
you know, X, Y, and Z seem to be coping, you know, making progress much faster on this thing and I'm struggling to compete. And so when you get these awards, it, you know, it says actually, you know, your colleagues do value what you've done. And it, it, it means a lot to, to have that. And whether there's prize money attached or indeed a medal, doesn't matter. It's just that, that recognition. Indeed. It's, it's, it's really, anybody who says it's, it's not important to them, I think is lying. Oh, I think we all like winning things, I'm sure. I can certainly vouch for myself when I say that, <laughs> no doubt. Um, so I should have probably asked you actually what it was that led to your 2014 award. What, what were you nominated for and who nominated you? Well, I don't know who... You don't know who nominated? nominated. Um, oh, a mystery, maybe. Uh, it's, um, uh, of course, the funny thing is with these, these prizes, there's a, always a, a kind of um, poacher turned gamekeeper thing. So you've no sooner been uh, ennobled and, and then you're asked to sit in the committee that, that, that chooses your successors. So you, that shows you what a kind of haphazard thing it is. <laughs> it makes it seem all the more remarkable that, that um, <laughs> the dice landed the right way for you. So I don't know, you know, names come up and nobody can quite remember where they come from. Some just randomly emerging discussion. Um, and it's, there's eventually a process of sifting, you know, people have in their minds, well, this area of astronomy has produced important results recently. These people seem to be involved and then the committee have to go away and do some due diligence to, to figure out looking at the, uh, the literature, the publication record, and then talking to, to people behind the scenes, you know, who were the people who, who made the biggest contributions to that, that particular advance. So in 2014, um, the prize it was split three ways, it was myself, Sean Cole, and an American astronomer called Dan Eisenstein. And that was all for, for work on these um, richer surveys, like the, the two-degree field, or it was an American equivalent project called called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, mm -hmm. and it was it was to do with. I mean, I haven't, haven't really said what it what it was that the um, that these these projects were able to measure. You know, when, when, when you're given a map of the, of the structure in the galaxies, what does it tell you? Well, one of the things it it lets you do is 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 weigh the universe. So you can, you can figure out how much dark matter there is total. Um, and there's, there's two ways you can see that that's possible. One is that the, um, in order for there to be a, a, a region where density is enhanced, um, that matter can only get there by, by falling in. So that means there's a velocity field. So particles of matter are not only clumped together, but they're all moving towards each other. Mm -hmm. And and so those velocities, um, well, they change the light that, that we get from, from the galaxies. You know, I'm, I'm not going to lower the dignity by by uh, mimicking it, but you know what I mean when an ambulance goes past you and the um, the tone of its of its siren changes mm -hmm. depending on it's moving towards you or away. Same thing with um, with galaxy spectroscopy. These extra velocities change the locations of spectral lines in ways we can detect. So we can measure statistically the amplitude of, of, of the velocities that um, 
the galaxies are approaching each other. And of course, the denser the universe is, the more mass there is, the, the higher these velocities. So that was one of the ways that we could we could pin down the density of, of, of material. Um, the other's more complicated. Maybe I won't, won't try and explain it, but it was it was for that that sort of statistical, you know, that kind of boiling down of these catalogues of of order of a million galaxies just to, to to a small a few small numbers that tell us a lot about the universe, like how much dark matter there is. Indeed, and um, yeah, well, I think you know what a worthy prize winner by the sounds of it. I mean, you contributed well, so much. I mean, the trouble yeah. is, as, as, as I said. Um, even in those days, back in the nineteen nineties, this this was team science. Mm -hmm. So, with a with a two degree field survey, there were there were thirty of us. Now, that's tiny by modern standards. Uh, today, you're talking that the Desi survey has has over a thousand cosmologists around the world, all collectively trying to do something together. So, it's a very different beast sociologically. But even so, you know, thirty people is is more than the three they gave the prize to. Um, Indeed. So, you know, I was keenly aware that I, I wasn't there because it was some kind of prize, supergalactic super prize for, for, for being a smart ass. It was a recognition of, of these collective achievements. So, you know, one of the things that Sean and I were very keen to do was to take part of the prize money and we set up a fund for astronomers to travel and spend time on research visits between the UK and Australia you know, to as an acknowledgement of the importance of that that partnership. What a good idea! I was going to ask you, and I thought maybe maybe I shouldn't. What, what did you What did you put the money towards? But that that that's well, that was, that was part of it. I, I tell you, to be honest, um, my very first thought on hearing that I got the prize was, "Oh, great! Now I can buy a basset horn." <laughs> so, um, for, for those who don't know, a basset horn is a is a, a, a specialized alto clarinet, mm -hmm. which is very popular in Mozart's days. So if you want to play the Mozart Requiem, you need a basset horn, and there's not many made, and so consequently they're very expensive, and I could never afford one. Um, but now I realized, okay, yeah, <laughs> my, my family won't be able to say, no, you can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was the, the most important part of winning that prize to me. Have you still got a basset horn? Oh yes, you've got it now. Good. Amongst um, quite quite a few others. I mean, going back to I think in two thousand and six, I discovered eBay, <laughs> and I realised people were selling clarinets on that for next to nothing. I mean, often things that have been sorely neglected, you know, stuck in an attic for unplayed for decades, rusty as anything, um, and I just at, at that time, you know, I'd just become head of astronomy in Edinburgh, so I had a whole new raft of administrative responsibilities, which I didn't enjoy terribly much. And sometimes I get back at the end of the day, just I couldn't think of doing any work in the evening, and just to have an old clarinet that I could disassemble, oil, clean up, and put back together was uh, was you know, exactly the right the right sort of therapy, and. Um, you know, I discovered afterwards that there was a there was a kind of um, strange coincidence because when I was in Cambridge as a student, I, I used to know uh, a guy called Nick Shackleton. Mm. He was a, he was a great scientist. He was one of the um, the pioneers in in using Antarctic um, Antarctic ice cores to measure 
climate. You know, so when you see all these curves correlating high CO2 and high temperatures mm -hmm. way back millions of years ago, uh, discussion of that in the context of global warming, well, you know, Shackleton was, was the pioneer in, in, in all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. He was also mad keen on the clarinet. And by the time he died, he had collected 800 of them. Clarinets, <laughs> and that was before eBay. So he used to spend a lot of time going to auctions and God knows what. What did he do with all his clarinets that he played? Well, he gave them to, to in his in his will. He gave them to the University of Edinburgh because the university here already had a um a, a collection of, of of historic instruments. So they, he yeah. thought they were a good place to to look after them. I have to say, actually, that, that hasn't worked out as, as I think he would have wanted. One of the great things about Nick was he loved seeing his old instruments played. So he'd, he would get the, the leading student musicians of, of their day, invite them all around to, to his house, just grab um, antique instruments out, out of a, a cupboard and say, here, you play this. And we would you know, play chamber music all evening, all um, these, these, these ancient things. And he would loan them out to the the top early music players like like Tony Pei in the Orchestra in the Age of Enlightenment, uh, groups like that. After they came to to, to Edinburgh, though, the, um, the curators here started placing restrictions on that sort of loaning. I think we see them more as museum pieces. So I, I just, so that seems a, a terrible shame to me. He'd have, real, he'd have preferred to see I don't think Nick would have been happy about that, but he didn't um, word his will carefully enough and that's where we are um however anyway i've got my own little collection so how many dare i ask of you uh, I, my wife keeps asking me this what i tell her <laughs> is more than 10 fewer than 100 and you won't get a better number out of me than that. Okay. that that's a good ballpark i reckon um and she's she's not a musician that's right but you did meet her through through music in fact well, well yes that's right uh, i mean she's musical she she used to sing a lot, although that, that kind of lapsed when, when the kids came along. Um, but she had a school friend who was the girlfriend of a bassoonist who I played music with at, um, at Cambridge. So it's, it's through that, that that we met. So the clarinet to the bassoon. Um, and the chorus wasn't in lot. Yeah. And um, it just it's it just it it seems like it was all meant to be as if you've if you've led a, a somewhat charmed life, John. Well, I, I I do feel it. I mean, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to overdo the false modesty, um, but it's true that it matters getting the breaks. You know, I can oh. get people that I I think of as equally capable as myself who haven't haven't done as well. Um, and that's no fault of theirs or credit of mine. It's just, you know, you, you make your own luck to a certain extent, but some of the big things, like you know, particularly getting um, getting this initial job offer in Edinburgh, I mean, you couldn't have designed for that. Mm. How life would have been without it, but, well, who knows? Might have, slightly different one. Slightly I, might have made, I might have made laser fusion work, but um, <laughs> maybe not. You never know. We'll never know. We'll have to wait for somebody else to make laser fusion work. I wonder if before we finish, um, you could uh, you've got any one thing that you would 
you think people should know about cosmology? I don't, it can be something very serious or something rather more basic. One thing that you think. One thing, okay. One, one thing that cosmology has taught us is that the vacuum has weight. You know, that's the single most radical thing that's emerged from, from the subject in, in, in the years. The vacuum, I mean, you think of a vacuum as something of that's nothing. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, what have we got in front of us? Well, there's some air. So I could build a box and I could pump the air out. Um, it's still not completely empty because um, radio waves, I mean, I can't see them, but I know radio waves are in the, the air in front of me as well. But you know, I could cover the box in tinfoil and, and shield those out. So I've taken out all the molecules. There's no way that radiation can get in. It's empty. There's nothing there. So it must weigh nothing, duh, but it doesn't. And you know, astron I mean, one of the, one of the, the things that data sets like these big galaxy surveys can uh, can tell us about is how the the universe is expanding, the galaxies are getting further apart with time, but we can measure how that rate of expansion has changed with time. And you would think it would be slowing down because all the galaxies are to pull each other together. So you'd think the expansion of the universe would be going up, but forever flatlining. But actually, it's doing the opposite. It's going faster now than in the past. That happens, I mean, mathematically, you can understand it. If, and, and this, is a, this is what I meant about mathematical modeling, telling you something. I mean, Einstein, actually, when he created the relativistic theory of gravity back in 1915, within a couple of years, it actually allowed for the possibility that, that empty space could still have gravitational effects. And there's just one number, which a parameter, which, which we call the cosmological constant, which is equivalent to how much a cubic meter of, of emptiness weighs. And the bigger that number is, actually, it has a gravitational push for reasons that probably we, we don't want to get into. Mm -hmm. um, well, actually, it can be of either sign, but but then the, if you want, no, if you wanted it to decelerate the universe, empty space would have to have a negative weight, which is even maybe more disturbing to the mind than the positive weight. Mm -hmm. um, but we need that number to be non-zero because we can't make sense of, of the data. We can see the, the expansion of the universe is speeding up, and so. You know, you infer with relativistic gravity as a, as a theoretical framework that empty space has a weight. And actually, it makes a lot of sense because um, um, how, how are you and I seeing each other at the moment? We're, we're using light. And what is light? Well, it's electromagnetic oscillations. And when we think of electricity and magnetism, we probably think of lines of force, don't we? Have you ever done the an old school experiment of sprinkling iron filings around a magnet. Yeah. yeah. And the iron filings point in the direction of the magnetic field. So you can kind of think of, you know, that's the direction that things are being pulled along. So it's like you and I are being connected by an elastic string. Right? If, if, I, if, you were, if I was positively charged and you were negatively charged, we'd have an electrostatic force pulling us together. And that's like this string you know, being strong and elastic. And so if I now, Woggle that string, 
then waves pass along it, just like they do on a, a washing line or something. And that's what electromagnetic radiation is. That's what light is. All right, so if you want to take all the light out of a box, that's like having these elastic strings completely still. Remember, we were talking about quantum mechanics earlier. It said that actually on very small scales, there's all, that there was this quantum uncertainty that a perfect knowledge of a system, that is to say it's completely stationary, is impossible. So there's, there's a concept called the zero point energy, which says that you can suck the energy out of the vacuum down to a certain level, but then quantum uncertainty means you can't get it quite to zero. So actually, you know, going back even to the early years of the 20th century, a lot of people were scratching their heads and saying, you know what, the vacuum should have weight. And cosmology in, in the 1990s actually measured that this was so. Which sounds like a great triumph, but it's not because the level that we've measured is, is really tiny. And if you want to figure one cubic meter of, of absolutely nothing weighs about 10 to the minus 27 kilograms. Okay. So that's not a great deal, but there's a lot of cubic meters in, in the universe, so it stacks up. But that's a far, if you try to calculate that figure using kind of naive quantum mechanical arguments, you get something that's colossally great, unbelievably larger than that. Yeah. So there's a real puzzle uh, that we haven't solved. But you know, it's not surprising that nothing has weight. And yeah. it's a real triumph that we've actually been able to measure that, that weight precisely. And now we just need to understand how the figure ends up being as small as it is. So that's it. We'll leave on that point, well on it for a moment. Nothing has weight. But... Nothing has weight. And it's you know, it, it's a cliche often repeated, but nevertheless true. This is the greatest unsolved problem in physics. And maybe that'll be what's next. Well, Professor John Peacock, Peacock, thank you very, very much for your time. Um, and I, we will um, meet again, I'm sure. Well, I've enjoyed it very much. Hope so. Good, I'm glad. <laughs>